going to finish Micah today, start Nahum next week, and then after Nahum, it's three chapters, uh, first Timothy and possibly second Timothy, but for sure first Timothy. So that's, that's what Brother Chuck and I have, have agreed to do and hope it works for you guys. How could you say no? It's the word of God. So Micah, we finish today. Lord willing, Nahum, we start next week. When we finish Nahum, First Timothy is what we'll start, just to give you an idea if you'd like to read ahead. So here's Micah's situation. He's living in a day that's really bad. Corruption, evil, bribery, defilement. Um, <laughs> very similar. Uh, moral uh, depravity. That's exactly right. His day was very, very uh, much parallel to our day. And Micah is filled with distress, as are many of us. It, it, it's as if he lost. It's as if he lost the life he once had. Society is his society is not the way it used to be. I could hear him saying, "I didn't grow up like this. It wasn't like this when I grew up." And so he is. He's actually grieving the loss of a lifestyle that I think he he valued. And so he writes in Micah chapter 7 what's called a lament, meaning just what it is. It's a song of grief. And here's how it begins, verse 1. Woe is me. It's the way you start a song of sorrow and loss. Woe is me, he says. In Yiddish, Yiddish is a, a language, um, it's, it's Hebrew plus Eastern European languages like German. And Jewish people speak, many speak Yiddish. And in Yiddish, we have an expression, ve is mir, which is woe is me. Ve is mir. We still use the expression. Sometimes we beat our breasts. We go like this. If there's a sudden loss, if there's a crisis, if there's an accident, it's an expression of grief. Ve is mir. Ve is mir. I can almost hear Micah doing the same thing, beating his breast. And then he gives an analogy, an unusual one. He says, I'm like the fruit pickers. It's not about agriculture. It's not about fruit. It's an analogy. An analogy. See, he says, I'm like a fruit picker. I'm not a fruit picker. I'm, an analogy is, a, is something we say, you, you give a story and then you derive a meaning from it. We haven't gotten to the meaning yet. Here's the story. I'm like a fruit picker, like grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which I crave. He said, I went out. Um, to reap the harvest of fruit and found nothing on the vine. He's not talking. He said, my expectation was dashed. I, I'm sorely disappointed. I have a, I'm, looking, I'm looking for fruit, no fruit. Well, he's not talking about fruit. It's an analogy. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about not good fruit. He's talking about good people. Look at verse 2. The godly person has perished. See, that's what he's saying he's missed. The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. He can't find, particularly in, amongst people of influence, godly character. I'm looking, he said. I'm, I'm finding nothing. Concerning evil, he says, verse 3, both hands do it well. He said the one thing done well in the society in which I live is sin. Sinners really have sinned down to a science. 
They may be right-handed, but they could even sin with their left hand. Both of their hands do it evil well. There's such ungodliness that we've gotten it down to a science. We can master deceit and mistrust and lies and exploitation. We, we have mastered this, he says. The prince, now he's going to mention three categories of people. Here's the first, the prince. What's the prince? An official, governing or religious official. The prince asks, also the judge, second person, judge, magistrate. Again, governing official, uh, administrator of law. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man, third person, Great man, what's the great man? Not necessarily someone who is uh, in government or religion. Someone of notoriety. Someone who has influence in the society, probably because uh, he was wealthy. A power broker in society, perhaps not even known by many, but with access, because of his wealth, with access to both the judge and the prince, representing political and religious establishment. So here's the deal. The prince asks, also the judge, what do they ask for? A bribe. Of whom? Well, the great man. Look, the great man speaks the desire of his soul. The great man, in a closed-door meeting, comes to the judge and or prince, says, you know, there's something you could do for me. They say, glad to help, for a price. And that's the business of the day, in Micah's day. And all three entities are together. Look, so they weave it together. People in all of these different institutions, government, law, religion, wealth, they get together to scheme. They're entrusted with influence and power and authority to use it on behalf of the people, and instead they're using it for selfish reasons. Can you relate to anything like that? a total abuse of authority. The best of them, verse 4, Micah says, is like a briar, the most upright, like a thorn hedge. You don't grab onto thorns. Thorns hurt you. These people hurt, Micah says. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. The watchmen could be a reference to Israel's prophets who warned the people of coming judgment and who were dismissed. Micah says, the, what the watchman said will come to fruition and there will be judgment. And when it happens, you all will be thrown into confusion. That's kind of what he's, what he's kind of saying there. And then, as if uh, untrustworthiness in high places um, wasn't bad enough, the very structure of society in Micah's day was breaking down. Evil and ungodliness had so infiltrated that uh, community, neighborliness, families were in disarray. Take a look. Do not trust in a neighbor. You know, by definition, the word neighbor uh, implies uh, trustworthiness, mutual care and assistance. No, says Micah. In his society, you had to have nine million locks on the doors and burglar alarm systems and... Ah, wait, that sounds like ours. Don't trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. Listen, from her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Even 
with the one you are most intimate in Micah's day, be careful. And now you have family disarray. Folks, when the family goes, I think it's over. In fact, every culture on earth that has allowed the demise of the family has sealed its own doom. Are we next? Um, A little bit of a crass advertisement. On May 15th, on Wednesday night, I'm going to start a series uh, called Unholy Ideas About Holy Matrimony. A very unpleasant series. Unpleasant. There is redefinition of marriage in many, many ways on many fronts today. Are they holy ideas or unholy ideas? And those redefinitions of holy matrimony, where will it lead us? What are the logical consequences for a society when we take what God has sourced and originated and refashion it sociologically to meet the needs of the day? Um, Once the family goes, it may be gone. That to me is a sign of the fact that God is gone. That is judgment. And that means the watchmen who uh, have pronounced uh, a warning of judgment. It's just around the corner. I don't want to ruin your day entirely. Hang in there. Don't don't give a hope, up hope just yet. But these things happen. Look, verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Can I tell you something? There's always been family problems when I grew up. A kid could be disobedient to parents for about two seconds. (laughs) And then mom and or dad would intervene. But that doesn't happen today. Why? Because the vast number of kids are born to single-parent households. So, so, So we don't have that. Anymore In my day, <clears throat> it was unusual for a child to strike out against parents. It was almost unheard of for parents to strike out against a child. But today, sadly, we hear with increasing frequencies how this, this God-given bond between parent and child seems to be so mutated by our sin that a child could kill parents and parents could kill children. It's happening. It's a different day. And this, yes, ma'am. Talking about that, we might be in school. Oh. And I was talking to one of the women I call Mormon women. Just a few people today. You know, because they can't get our basket shot that went over there. And that was Mr. Jim's fault for not punching it over there. Uh, uh, oh, it's a big difference. It's sort of a. Diff- it's just a different. It's just a different day, and, and this passage is invoked by the Lord Himself, centuries later, in a different context. In Luke, chapter twelve, verse fifty-three, He's talking to His disciples. Here's what He says: They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The Lord is saying to his followers, I want you to know something. This is the kind of thing that will characterize society shortly before I return. I wonder if the Lord's return is near. We're there. 
for crying out loud. It's just unbelievable. The uh, I'm not out to get anyone, pain anyone, treat anyone with disdain. But if marriage is now redefined as being simply a, a love relationship between any combination of partners, do you understand the ramifications of that? So if it's same-gender marriage, which will be approved of, increasingly uh, it is being a, a, um, approved of by many countries. Our Supreme Court will weigh in on it pretty soon here. Um, if the redefinition of marriage is based on love relationship, I mean, who could argue with love? Uh, then is it not possible to love more than one at a time? Therefore, why can't you be married to more than one partner? And, and, and if the definition is love, then um, why can't you be wedded to one whom you love but have sex with many? If the definition of marriage is love, then why even have a formal ceremony called marriage? Why don't you just love each other and live together? If the definition of marriage is now just love between people, then who's to legislate what the ages of those people have to be? Why can't it be an adult and a minor child? There's already an organization called the Man-Boy Association. And I guarantee you that once, once gay marriage is, um, is legalized, it will be. Once it is, the Man-Boy Association will say, what about us? Look, I got this young boy. He's only 10, but his parents abandoned him. I've taken him in. He's never known love like this before. Ask him. I'm not imposing myself on him, the adult would say. It's just, does that sound far-fetched? It's not far-fetched at all. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? When that happens, listen to me. If I made something, I fashioned it, a, a, piece of, a ceramic piece, and I showed it to you because I was proud of it, and you came up with some paint and repainted it, would I not have a right to be a little disturbed with you? Does God not have a right to be disturbed with us when we are refashioning what he created? One man being irreversibly bound to one woman, the two becoming one flesh. Doesn't God have a right to be vexed by that? You know what my concern is? Not what's happening out there. My concern is what's happening in here because what's happening in here is too much like what's happening out there. <clears throat> the Lord says this stuff is going to happen before he returns. Micah says, uh, this is a bad day in which I live. I'm grieving and lamenting the day. So wh what do we do about it? Let's see what he did about it. Verse 7, three things if you look carefully. Look, but as for me, here's the first, I will watch expectantly. Second, watch expectantly for the Lord. Second, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Third, my God will hear me. Here's what he did. He watched, he waited, he prayed. What does that mean? To watch expectantly for the Lord means to order your affairs now in light of his soon return. See what I mean? One time my mother was flying to Texas. It was a good deal. She was coming to, to see me and my family. I knew she was to arrive at a certain time at a certain gate at Hobby Airport. I scheduled nothing during that time. Her impending arrival affected my decisions, schedule, priorities. 
There were other things, but not nearly as important. I made sure to get to the airport on time. I took into account the potential of traffic on 45 and all the rest. I got there. I parked the car. I knew the gate. I wanted to be at the gate before she arrived. There were many people at the gate waiting for their loved ones. It meant nothing to me. Who they were waiting for meant nothing to me. In fact, here they come, off the plane, the people who were being waited for by others. I'm straining my head like this. I'm looking over the crowd for one, just one. I am not distracted by almost anything else going around me. Uh, It was around lunchtime that my mother was due to arrive, and so I was hungry. I bypassed lunch. I was thirsty. I bypassed something to drink. I won't talk about other needs I had at the time. (laughs) You can use your judgment. I was just focused on the impending arrival of someone with whom I had a very special bond and connection. Folks, Micah says, as for me, I'll watch expectantly for the Lord. If you're expecting the soon return of Jesus, it doesn't mean you do nothing. It means you focus and order your affairs like never before. It means you free yourself from things that that entangle you. It means you don't invest in things that distract you. And it means you want to look good when the special person arrives. I remember wearing one time my mother was coming a shirt she sent me for my birthday. I didn't like it. My mother was coming, put on the shirt. She'll get a kick. I decided to do the things that were pleasing to her, not to me. If you're watching expectantly for the Lord's return, that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. We're not doing the things that are pleasing to us. We're doing the things that are pleasing to him. You know what pleases him? Righteousness. You want to be bedecked in the apparel of righteousness. You don't want to spend the night before watching some nutso thing 2 o'clock in the morning on HBO. You don't want to meet the Lord defiled. You you don't want to be drinking yourself into oblivion so as to sober up for when he arrives. You want to work on pruning all this stuff. You don't want to be watching stuff on your computer that would displease him. You don't want to be cheating on your spouse. You don't want to be influenced by the culture. You're not having sex outside of marriage. You're not living together. You're not gambling. You're not playing the lottery. You're not going to nutso movies and stuff like that just because they're pleasing to you. You're saying, oh, no. I'm watching. The problem is not the society, it's us. We're losing our voice. Why? Because we look like them. The divorce rate amongst us is just as high. We have premarital sex just like they do. We live together just like they do. And then we talk about traditional marriage. The problem is not the gay community. The problem is the Christian community. Folks, what's up? God says, come out from them. And we want to be like them. We want their entertainment. We want their apparel. We want their recreational and leisure pursuits. Come on. It's quiet in here, isn't it? Folks, we're in deep trouble. The culture is passing us by. We are already countercultural. The culture is not listening to us. We have forfeited our credibility. Why? We look awfully like the culture. 
You know what Micah said? Not me. I will watch expectantly for the Lord. And when the culture says, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Then Micah would say, because I want to do that which is pleasing to the Messiah who is just around the corner. That's a big phrase right there. He said something else. I will wait for the God of my salvation. What does that mean? Sit on a couch, wait? What? No, no, no. The word wait means hope. I will put my hope in his return. So here's another bad word or a bad phrase to give you. You know how bad things are now today? You're not going to be able to fix it. You might as well just admit it. It is so corrupt, so crooked, you're not going to straighten it out. You can't straighten out the government. You're not going to. You cannot straighten out the educational system. It's not going to happen. You definitely can't fix the economy. Are you kidding me? You can't fix a a thing. So what do you do? Hopeless? No, 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 no. You stop putting your hope in a repaired government, a repaired economy, a repaired educational system. You put your hope in the Lord because he's going to fix things you can't fix. Neither can I. Do you do nothing? I didn't say you do nothing. You do the one thing. Nobody else can do but a Christian. You praise Jesus in your lifestyle and you tell people about Jesus. That's it. That, those are the unique things a Christian could do. Hey, I want to tell you something. Um, I would not be sharing these things unless I had the mind of Christ. How did I get the mind of Christ? By Christians browbeating me, protesting, holding up signs, voting. I didn't say anything is bad, but that's how I, how I got the mind of Christ. A guy shared the gospel. And, 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 and God saved me. And it just changed everything. So I am not in favor of abortion now, though I was. I'm not in favor of um, re, uh, re, redefining God's mar- plan of marriage, though I would have been. How did all that happen? Nobody protested, burnt down, campaigned, got in my face. The gospel was the power of God for salvation. We could do a lot in society, but fix it. You're not going to fix it. It's not to be redeemed. The structures of society are not going with us into eternity. Only the people therein. So Micah said, I I put my hope in the God of, do you see what he says? My salvation. Hey, can I tell you something? If you can't insert that personal pronoun, my, then it is no salvation. There's no such thing as group salvation, generic salvation. You have to know a personal savior who saves you from your personal sin. In a personal way. Micah said, I got plenty to do. I'm going to put my hope in the God of my salvation. And my God will hear me, which implies he's praying like crazy. That's the third thing we could do. Pray like crazy. That's another unique thing only Christians could do. God doesn't hear the prayers of an unsaved person. He doesn't do that. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God such that he does not hear your prayers. Isaiah. You have to know God before you can talk to God. Micah says, I will pray. That's what he said. There's plenty we could do, folks. I didn't say give up hope. I just said make sure your hope's in the right place. I don't know if you knew this, but we're not going to be here forever. Therefore, why live like it? If I was you, I would slim down. No, I don't mean (laughs) weight-wise. I mean culture-wise. I would just travel lightly. I would just travel lightly. I would just not make 
life surrounded by stuff and things and more things and more stuff and more long-term investments. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus. He's going to return. He's going to make all things that are wrong right. Live for him like never before. So that's what Micah did. And then he says this in verse 8, Don't rejoice over me, O my enemy. He's speaking on behalf of Israel and Jerusalem here. Don't rejoice over me. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. And then something quite interesting in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He is representing his people Israel in a confession of sin. I must tell you something. That has not happened on that level yet amongst Jewish people and in Israel. National repentance. It has not happened. Uh, Lord willing, I'm going to Israel with some uh, of you even in two weeks. We're going to see the land of the Bible and we're going to see the people who live in it. And I'll tell you what they're like. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and resistant to truth. That's what they're like. It's not a repentant people, but verse 9 says it will be. This people confesses, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Listen to me. What is the manifestation of the indignation of the Lord with regard to Israel and the Jewish people? It's called persecution and oppression. Israel is surrounded on every front today by ones who want to drive her into the sea. You know who's to blame for it? Israel. That is a form of God's indignation. Listen to me. When you take yourself out from his protective umbrella, you make yourself subject to ravenous predatory wolves. The sheep of his fold have made themselves subject to ravenous wolves. In a day, future, it hasn't happened yet. Israel will say, I bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I have sinned against him. But it's not forever. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light. I will see his righteousness. What happens when, from confession and repentance? The mercy of God happens. Then my enemy will see, verse 10, shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It's a prophecy of future things with reference to Israel. You see the phrase, your walls, you see there in verse uh, 11, it will be a day for building your walls. It's a different Hebrew word for walls than is typically used. These are not walls as in defensive structure. These are walls around a vineyard. Why is this word used? Because in that day, when the Lord returns, Israel will not need protective walls because the Lord Jesus will be in their midst as her protector. And it says, your boundary will be extended Do you know at no time during the history of Israel have they ever possessed the full extent of the land given to her by covenant under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Never, never. Why not? Because of sin. She's never possessed the full extent of the land. You know what the parallel is to us? 
If you are saved, you're saved, right? But if you sin, you could limit the extent to which you possess all that you are an heir to. You could extinguish, you could limit, you could choke the joy of your salvation. God didn't take away the title deed of the land from Israel, and he's not going to take the title deed of your salvation away from you. But if you sin, you can sure forfeit the joy thereof. Israel is an example of it. Here's the title deed. Your land is to extend from north, south, east, west. These are the boundaries. Israel never experienced it. Why? Because of Israel's sin. But in that day, your boundary will be extended. Now it gets even more marvelous. Verse 12. It'll be a day when they... We don't know who the they is just yet. When they will come out to you, look, from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt, even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea, mountain to mountain. Get this. To the north was Assyria, encompassing modern-day countries like Iraq, Iran, so on. To the south was, still is, Egypt. Israel is sandwiched between the two. The Egyptians and the Assyrians hated each other. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians hated the Israelites. It was a horrific picture. This verse prophetically is saying it will be a day, that's future, when the Assyrians and the Egyptians even from sea to sea, mountain to mountain, will come to you for conquest? No. Let me read to you a parallel prophecy, Isaiah chapter 19, written at, uh, about the same situation. This, I hope, blows your mind. Isaiah chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. In that day, folks, those are f- phrases, they all mean future. It hasn't happened yet. In that day, There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Egypt in the south, Assyria in the north. Look. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. What? In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, now get this, blessed is Egypt, my people. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Right there. Blessed is Egypt, God says, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. How could you use those three entities in the same breath except they are at war with one another? But God says, no, in that day, saved, redeemed ones from Assyria in the north, from it's Iraq, it's Iran, from Egypt, it's Syria, uh, uh, Egypt in the south, will get together and go to Israel. And I will have people, look what it says, from sea to sea, mountain to mountain, coming to Israel for war, No, to worship. Folks, I must tell you something. Nobody could bring that about. I got to smack myself in the face just to see, really, are you kidding, God? Because the present-day Middle East situation 
it doesn't resemble this at all. Who do you think is going to be able to pull this off? Will the United Nations pull this off? Folks, do you know what's going on in Egypt? Mohammed Morsi, head of the Muslim Brotherhood, Iran, Hamas, it's all connected. Do you know what's happening in Egypt to Christians, Coptic Christians? They're being killed. That's what's happening. Do you know he wants to refashion the Constitution to obligate everyone in Egypt to live under Muslim Sharia law? Forget about democracy. Are you kidding me? That's what's, how about places like Iran? Do you like what's going on in Iran? That guy is nuts. Hey, let me ask you a question. How do nuts, nutso people get to be leaders of countries of the world? You got the guy in Iran, you got the guy in North Korea. The only guy in North Korea who's held in high, uh, who holds the leader in North Korea in high esteem is Dennis Rodman. <laughs> yeah, Rodman thinks he's a good guy. By the way, it is a misdiagnosis. They aren't nuts. That's wrong. It's not a psychiatric affliction. They're demon-possessed. They're in the hands of the Prince of Darkness. Folks, the United Nations can't fix that. The EU, the European Union, they're trying to make peace in the Middle East along with Russia and China. What? Our president makes a token visit to the Middle East. He can't fix anything. Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, he can't fix anything. I'm not taking sides here. I just want to tell you something. You're not going to fix what's broken. Admit it. The power brokers of the world won't admit it. They think they got a police pen because our, our new Secretary of State, John Kerry, goes over and spends a little time over there. He doesn't even know what's going on. Are you kidding me? I, I know I'm sounding a little disrespectful. I don't mean that. I, I, I have no respect for humankind in general because <laughs> we respect ourselves too highly. We think we're hot. We're not. We can't fix, we can't fix the stuff we done broke. We don't even want to. So, so, so this stuff in the Middle East, this is not what I read in the news. But Isaiah says, oh, yeah, read all about it. Micah says, read all about it. That's what's going to happen one day. Oh, my goodness. Watch expectantly for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. In fact, people from around the globe, not just from the north of Syria, from the south Egypt, not just from sea to sea, you see where it says Euphrates, even to the Euphrates? What country is that in? Yeah, it's in Iraq. Do you know the a part of the full extent of the boundaries of Israel goes all the way to, to the Euphrates, Iraq? Could I make a dogma? I always make dogmatic statements. Here's another one. If my people had been faithful to our God, I don't think American troops would have lost their lives in Iraq. I'm an American. I serve in the military. I got a son who serves in the military. I know, I know soldiers who lost their lives in Iraq. If my people had not sinned, we would have had the full extent of the land and we wouldn't have had a crazy regimes in Iraq that we have to deal with today. The ramifications are unbelievable, and we can't fix it. Israel's not repentant. Our leaders don't have a clue. Our leaders can't even get us out of debt. Leave me alone. <clears throat> so Micah said, 
I will wait. I will watch. I will pray. And what he's speaking of in verse 12 and what Isaiah spoke of has been spoken of earlier in Micah chapter 4. Let me remind you, verses 1 and 2. It will come about in the last days. That's future. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem, from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's what it says. And the earth will become desolate, verse 13. Because of its inhabitants, God will not only come with blessed grace and restoration, but also judgment. Micah prays to God, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland. He saw Israel to be rather isolated internationally. In the midst, he says, shepherd them in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Bashan and Gilead was the territory which Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted when they came out of Egypt during the conquest of the Promised land, remember they said, we want to stay on this side, east of the Jordan? That's Bashan and Gilead. Why did they want it? Because it was fertile agriculturally. Have you heard the expression, the cows of Bashan? It's an expression in the Bible. Big, fat cows, because they had lots of good land to graze on and all the rest. Mike is saying, oh God, shepherd them, would you? So that... We are not an isolated nation, but so that we are grazing in fertile territory like Bashan and Gilead. By the way, you know where that is today in Israel? That's the Golan Heights. I will be there in two weeks. I told my people to bring some real good helmets. Golan Heights. Syria, Jordan. Micah says, let Israel dwell there again. See, that's part of their boundaries as well. Bashan and Gilead. And God answers Micah's prayer, verse 15. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. That's what it says. Nations will see it, verse 16, and be ashamed of all their might. See, nations will come against Israel thinking they have might to to destroy her. But they'll be ashamed of the fact that in comparison to God's might, they don't have might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. There will be a day when God will manifest his might on Israel's behalf as over against the nations of the world that have turned against Israel. Now I have to say something. I have come under some fire here. Not from many, but from some. Because they think I overdo the Jewish-Israel thing. And they may be right. 
So I don't plan to be a pastor of a single issue. You cannot do that. When you're a pastor in a church, every issue uh, is important that concerns the people. But folks, I did not write this book. I'm just going over it one verse at a time. And after Micah, I started to look at Nahum. Good night. It talks about the Jews too. The whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament. Folks, I don't want to apologize for the emphasis God has put on the Jews and on Israel. He's done it. I didn't write the book. I'm just trying to read it like you are and understand it as good as I could. But here's the deal. I would be way out of balance if I communicated that the Jews are special, better, virtuous, stronger, smarter, better looking. All right, maybe that one. No. I hope I have... Uh, shown to you, I think the opposite. I think my people, it pains me to say this, are not only not better, we're worser, if that's a word. (laughs) Think about this. We have been entrusted with such privilege. We have squandered it. And the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. We have received much. Look, the prophets, Micah being one, Isaiah, the promises of God, the oracles of God. We've squandered it. I admit this. I am not defending the virtue of my people. I know what we've done. We're stiff-necked. We're hard-hearted. I know it. But this is the very point. Because we are the way we are, we, better than any other people group on earth, can give evidence of the grace of God. Why are we alive today? Not only are we Jews alive today, we're back in the land, 1948. How? Not only that, but God still has a future plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not making it up. You're reading what I'm reading. I could be tempted, maybe some of you, to laud the Jews and become Jew-centered. That's called racism, There is no people group better than any other people group. We're the same. Cultures differ marvelously. I hope you enjoy the diversity. That's beautiful. But the integrity of a human being, a Jew, a Gentile, a black, a white, an old, young, whatever the deal is, stop. We're all created in the image of God. I want you to lambast me if I'm bordering on racism. But my interest in centering on Israel only goes so far as the Bible centers on Israel. Why? Because more than all the theology books of the world, if you see how God has responded to Israel, you'll see God. For instance, after all this stuff in the first 17 verses, Micah can't control himself. God revealed to him what's going to happen in the future. So he ends with a doxology. A doxology is a praise to God. Here it is, verse 17, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Now, wait just a second. How do you know God is a God who pardons iniquity? How do you know God is a God who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? How do you know God is a God who does not retain his anger forever? How do you know God is a God who delights in unchanging love? I'll tell you the answer. Israel. Don't you see? That's why God has kept Israel alive. Because you and I are not reading all the theology books in the world. We don't even understand them. So God gave us a real life, historic, touchable, concrete illustration, both of the nature of man, we sin, and the nature of God, he forgives. Upon confession and repentance. One of the reasons I don't doubt the grace of God is because I think about the Jews. Are you kidding me? Even Paul said, do you remember when Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners? He's not exaggerating. He was. And he talks about how God forgave him, how much more? Others. The whole nation of Israel reveals that without even knowing it yet. Yet. And so if you get rid of Israel, now, by the way, militarily, there's efforts to do so. Good night there. The nations of the world are already scheming to so as to drive Israel into the sea. But you could also get rid of Israel theologically. You could say God no longer has a plan for Israel. He's replaced Israel. You don't understand what you're doing. If you're doing that, you're casting aspersions, not on Israel. Who cares? You're casting aspersions upon God. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what it says. Psalm 105, and he has remembered his covenant. And the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance forever and ever. Why is that important? Because God also made a promise to you. To you! I will give a place of promise forever. Heaven. Heaven. I'll give you heaven. Now, if God couldn't uh, keep the Jews in the land in spite of themselves and her enemies, what makes you think God can protect you until the time of your home going? Don't you see? If Israel could outsend God's grace, if Israel's enemies could, could uh, have more might than God, then something can get in the way between you and your God who promised you Heaven. Don't you see what's at stake here? It's huge. It's huge. It's, it's huge. Verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Folks, that is a reference to Israel. That's not a reference to America. That's a reference to Israel. I want to tell you about a Jewish custom we have. It's called Tashlich. Tashlich. It means to cast away. Tashlich came about in the Middle Ages. Jews on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, go to a body of water, usually a flowing river. They take breadcrumbs. It's a family deal. Kids are there, everyone. They toss breadcrumbs into the river. As they see the river carry away the breadcrumbs, they recite this very verse, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. And they say, oh God, in this new year, May it be that you will carry away our sins from the prior year and give us an opportunity to start out with a clean slate. That's what they do. 
It's a beautiful thing, and it's an ugly thing. It's beautiful in terms of appearance. Families get together, they sing songs, they read Micah 7, verse 19, they throw bread away. So why is it ugly? Breadcrumbs going down a river is not what carries away sin. It's the blood of Jesus that carries away sin. You see what my people have done? We made a fancy, beautiful religious practice out of a truth that we are avoiding. That our own Savior, Messiah Jesus, suffered and died to cast all our sins behind his back. You can take all the loaves of bread in the world and throw it into all the bodies of water in the world. But it's Jesus, the bread of life, who cast away our sin. I hate religion, my own and yours. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Religion will take fundamental basic truths that have to do with the merits of Jesus and will make some ritual out of it that we take credit for. So we do tashlich. And you get a bunch of unsaved Jews throwing bread into the water. They come unsaved and they leave unsaved because they reject the Savior. Has the Savior rejected them? However, no. No. Now someone said to me, Stuart, are you saying every Jew is going to be saved? Heavens, no. I wish that was the case. No, 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 no. A million times, no. I'm only saying there's a remnant of believing Jews. God has in every generation who, contingent upon their repentance, confession of sin, faith in the Lord Jesus, will be saved. God's not finished with the ethnic Israel because he will extract from them those who will believe. How does a Jew get saved? The same way anyone is saved. Through the merits of the Savior. And then Micah closes the book, verse 20, with this. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Folks, Micah's book began with judgment and it ends with grace. Your life began being conceived in sin. Did you know that? And if along the way you've accepted the Lord Jesus, the grand finale of your life will be grace. That's the way it is. Grace greater than all my sin. How do I know that? Israel. (laughs) You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. How do I believe God in your unchanging love when I can't trust anyone today? As in Micah's day, so today I can't really trust people who ought to be there for me. How could I trust in your unchanging love? I think God would say, I've given you books of the Bible to show you how I have responded to the most unlovely people on earth, the Jews. Don't you see evidence of my unchanging love? I will never let you go. For I am the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The character of God does not change. Now, why didn't God choose Italians or Irish or something like that to be the focal point of his theological examples? I have no idea. You ask him one day. If anything, once again, he chose my people because we are the least likely. And that seems to be the way of God. He chooses the least likely to manifest his love and his grace. And such are some of you. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm not going to apologize anymore, forget it, about talking about Israel and Jewish stuff. Uh, and uh, did I warn you about this? If you're distressed about that, you can take your case to a higher court to the Lord Jesus. But I just want to remind you, last time I checked, he's Jewish too. Got to get yourself a good lawyer. But by the way, your good lawyer is probably going to be Jewish too. So don't have a heart attack. You'll need a doctor. And by the way, your doctor is probably... Brother, please. Yes. Yes. Nice question from an Egyptian man, huh? <laughs> That's my brother. Um, um, I don't know if it's order of priority, actually. I, it, it, it probably, Mrs. Goddess, what do you think? He's right or wrong? Come on. No, I, mean, I won't put... It's like a triangle. Oh, I'm sorry. In Isaiah, uh, Dr. Goddess makes this wonderful observation. First it says, in Isaiah's prophecy that I read, Egypt, my people, Egypt mentioned first. Assyria, my, what's it say? My something. Oh, the work of my hand. Assyria, second. Israel, my inheritance or something. Third. So Dr. Goddess wants to know, So doesn't that mean Egypt is first? See that? (laughs) First come to the Lord. Oh, you may be right. Do you know we have the privilege of two Egyptian men here? Here's Dr. Habashi right here. This is a marvelous thing, don't you think? Listen, you ask, I'm sorry, you ask, you make a great observation. Could it be that there's going to be a revival first in Egypt? And then to these other places. Sure. Listen, brother, you, you know, uh, coming from Egypt, there's such terrible disarray and turmoil now. This is the stuff sometimes that drives people to the Lord. This is what we pray, no? This is a good observation. Thank you, brother. Pray for Egypt. Pray for Iran, for Iraq. How about Syria? Oh, my goodness. Thousands and thousands killed. Lebanon. How about people in Lebanon? How about the Palestinians? The Palestinians uh, uh, in in Ramallah do not like uh, Mahmoud Abbas. And in Gaza, they're disgusted with Palestinian leadership there, very corrupt, not meeting the needs of people. This is the kind of thing, just like in our country, that could drive us to the God who can be trusted. So we, so we want to pray in these terms, especially since we know our prayers will be answered. God already told us what's going to happen. A highway of the nations leading to a place of common worship of Almighty God. So this is a good thing to, good thing to pray. Thank you, brother. God bless you. I'm a Jew. He ain't. He's my brother. Who could do this? United Nations? When we go to Israel, our guide is a Jew. 
our driver is an Arab man. The Arab man was a Muslim. The Jew was a Jew. <laughs> you know what they are now? Christians. People say, oh, one's an Arab, one's a Jew. No, uh, not the two we met. This is another guy, Ronnie and Munir. Um, don't they hate each other? Yeah. Until they met Christ. He changes things. I didn't say give up on the world. I just said give up on on, renov- on preserving the world. It's going, folks. I, I didn't say give up on the people of the world. Are you kidding me? Only, only Jesus can put together Jews and Gentiles, Arabs and Jews, blacks and whites, everything. Look, we're divided on all these fronts, are we not? Don't do that. When Jesus brings us, Jesus brings us together, he says, my hope, I will wait. I will watch expectantly for the God of my salvation. I'm telling you, it's going to get so bad. I'm telling you, I don't want to preach doom. I'm just telling you, but then it's going to get so good. The king will be seated on the throne. We will bow before him and we'll look around. We'll say, you're here. (laughs) No, I mean, because there'll be some Methodists, really. (laughs) And, and we will, we will forever be so, we'll sing his praises like Micah did. Who is a God like you? By the way, that phrase is a form of the name Micah. Micah. It's kind of a play on the words. Lord Jesus, we're going to talk to you now and think more on these things perhaps later, but talk to you now because we're so grateful to you. We're overwhelmed. And uh, you have saved us from the penalty of sin, but so much more. Thinking that's not right, behaviors, values, priorities, hopes. Where do we put our hopes? Stock market? No. Government? No. You. And we look expectantly for your return. We want to be focused, centered, ready, prepared. We want to look real good when you come. We want to wear our finery of righteousness when you come. We want to be able to hear you say, good to see you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to dig in, Lord Jesus, to come out from the throes of culture, not to isolate, but to separate from worldly ways so as to have a message for the world of hope in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your patience manifested through Israel, your love, your grace, your forgiveness, all the rest. We believe you for it with reference to us. Why not? We're not as bad as they. If you have a plan for Israel, why not us? Thank you for the future. It's a future with hope, a place of promise, a new Jerusalem. We look forward to it. Until then, we have lots to do here. Strengthen us so as to do it until your return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. I owe you a minute. We went till 1230. I'll extract it from next week. <laughs>